This is the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris, episode number eight. Well, welcome back to the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and I am Kevin Morris here today to help give you tools and tips for reading the Bible better. Before we launch into this episode's content, I'd like to give you a little bit of an update for some really housekeeping issues with the podcast and my website, Script and Song. And I'd like to tell you that I have a new website, and the website is betterbiblereading.com. So many of you who have uh, listened to this podcast and have seen my uh, interaction on social media have probably asked the question at one point or another, what in the world is script and song? Well, when I first wanted to launch my website and had ideas for a future podcast, this was way back almost a year ago now, uh, I wanted to make a website that really communicated my two interests uh, some people maybe call them hobbies. Really, they're more than hobbies for me, but that was the script and the song. So writing and music. And that's really the two things that I have devoted the majority of my life to, um, writing theological articles. Uh, and then this is also an expression of that in this podcast. And then also uh, the music side. Some of you might not know that I've been playing guitar for over 20 years now, um, definitely the large majority of my life, and uh, I really enjoy doing that. I like playing instrumental music. I also like playing Christian music and being involved uh, with that at my local church. And I wanted the website to be kind of a, a culmination of those two interests of mine. Well, I also wanted to use the website to focus on a lot of theological and biblical ideas I had. And for anybody that goes to Script and Song website, uh, you'll notice that literally 100% of everything on there in terms of content is biblical-based. There's not anything related to music on there. That's not because I don't care about music anymore. It's just really because I've been so motivated with my interest of helping people read the Bible that I've kind of put my music projects on the back burner. So I thought it would be really just simpler in terms of continuity between my website and my podcast uh, to just make everything one and the same. If I get to music-related things in the near future, then I'll find some kind of outlet to to do that, or I might just put it on script and song. Uh, But I wanted to find a, a website that really was a good explanation of what I was doing. And a few months back, I looked up... Uh, domain names. I don't know how many of you listening to this have tried to create websites before. I have a pretty good uh, background doing that for different churches that I've served with and also bands I've been in and things like that. I've, so I, I have some working knowledge of, of making websites. Uh, but anyways, what you have to do is you have to check the availability of a domain name. So I thought, well, better Bible reading. You know, that's what my podcast is called. So that makes sense to have my website be entitled that as well. So Typed in betterbiblereading.com. It was already taken. So then I opened up a new tab. I searched that. And when you type in betterbiblereading.com, it automatically forwards to Crossway. And so 
I don't know how many of you are, are familiar with Crossway, but Crossway is the publishing company of the ESV Bible, and that's the Bible translation that I prefer. It's the one that I use, uh, the English Standard Version. But Crossway is that publishing company, and turns out they actually owned BetterBibleReading.com. So I reached out to them and spoke with them about whether or not they were using that domain name any longer and told them what my interests were. And anyways, long story short, uh, talked to them. They got back with me, and we actually made a domain transfer. They were excited about what I was doing here and said, hey, we're not using that domain name anymore. Let's get the transfer process going. And at the time of this recording, I now am the owner of BetterBibleReading.com. So I'm a few days out of the actual release date of this. So by the time you're listening to this podcast episode, I hope that I have everything in terms of content transferred over from script and song to Better Bible Reading. So We'll see how things go. I hope um, that by the time you're listening to this, you will be listening to this through BetterBibleReading.com. But either way, I'm just excited about that. Um, I think it's going to help, especially when I talk on here. You're so used to me saying, hey, if you like Better better Bible Reading, go to Script and Song. And there's just, you know, there's maybe too much of an unnecessary discontinuity between those two titles. So I'm really excited about what this will mean for the future uh, for my Bible and theology projects, at least. Um, if you're more interested in the music side of me, then I will be sure to reach out to you all if and when I get new things released. Uh, but for now, my mind and my heart is just really centralized on this podcast and the biblical articles that I've been writing over at Script and Song, which will now be Better Bible Reading. So, that being said, this episode is episode number eight of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And what you can do to search for this episode is to type in betterbiblereading.com slash episode eight. And I hope you hear that that is really just rolls off the tongue a lot more than scriptandsong.org slash bbrp8. But anyways... Uh, that being said, uh, let's move on to this episode. So this episode, I want to talk to you about the New Testament and related more specifically to the New Testament. The question that we want to ask with the New Testament is this, what is it? What is the New Testament? The subtitle being both an aerial view and a view from ground zero. And I hope as I continue talking to you, those two concepts will not only make sense, but they'll be instrumental in helping you understand the New Testament. So way back when, being a few months ago anyways, we spoke with my friend Josh Henson, pastor of Ortega Presbyterian Church down in Jacksonville. And the episode that we talked about was related to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, more particularly how the two relate to one another, so the continuity of the two and the discontinuity of the two. And we really explored a whole lot of different concepts related to that 
in the episode. If you want to listen to that, you can. Here's my opportunity to use the new domain name. Go to betterbiblereading.com slash episode four. You'll be able to find my conversation with Josh Henson was really helpful to me. I really enjoyed that one. And I think that that will be a good supplement to what we're talking about today. Some of the topics we've some of this content, anyways, we've covered in that previous episode somewhat, but since I released these bi-weekly, I thought it would be good to take a little bit of that and look at it in more of a focused way. So if you're catching the, the theme of what we've been working through so far on the podcast, we've touched on reading the Bible in general, studying the Bible in a more particular sense, looking at an overview of the New and Old Testament, how they relate to each other, and then a focused look on the Old Testament and a survey of the different genres. Now what we want to do is kind of do an overview or more concentrated look at least of the New Testament. What is the New Testament? Well, to get things started, I want to read to you what Jesus Christ, our Lord, says to us in the towards the end of the gospel of mark this is what's formally called the last supper uh, but it's also a good title would be the institution of the lord's supper and this is just shortly before jesus is betrayed in the garden and he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he institutes the Lord's Supper. He gives an institution of what we practice as a sacrament in our local churches. And he says this about his blood. He says this when he lifts up the cup with the wine in it. He says, this is verse 24 of Mark chapter 14, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Some translations will say, or should say some manuscripts say, this is my blood of the new covenant. That whole idea, covenant, is really the basis of the Bible as a whole. Although our Bibles in English say Old Testament, New Testament, that word testament really shouldn't be understood. And here's some of that content we covered with Josh back in episode four. The concept of Testament really shouldn't be understood in terms of a last will and testament, which we're very often familiar with in how we handle the death of somebody in our family and working through belongings and bequeathing this and that to this person or that person. That's not really what we want to think about when we think about the New Testament because that word testament is really just an English translation of the Latin word testamentum. And that Latin word testamentum is not similar with our modern-day English concept of last will and testament, but it's really a translation of the Hebrew and Greek concept of covenant. So, Really, putting my cards on the table, I, I kind of wish that our English Bible said Old Covenant, New Covenant, because those concepts are really 
the heart and soul of what the Bible has to say. You won't find in the Old Testament especially any relation to the idea of testament. What you'll have is over and over again the idea of covenant playing forth. And this is exactly what you see in Jesus' forthcoming death on the cross as he relates what's about to happen as being the basis of the new covenant. So really in in a kind of simple but profound and vitally important way, when we think about the New Testament, we want to think about it as a fulfillment of the new covenant. You see all throughout the Old Testament, ever since the fall of Adam in the garden, that there's a future promise given. The future promise given is that God says to the serpent that one will come to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, to destroy the works of the devil. And what were the works of the devil? Well, it was deceiving mankind and the subsequent uh, reality of that was sin entering into the world and the whole human race being cursed and fallen in sin. In what Adam did and what we ourselves do individually is that we sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's that universal pronouncement of sin. So what does that have to do with the New Covenant or the New Testament? Well, it has everything to do with it because what the Bible anticipates ever since that moment when sin entered into the world and the human race fell through Adam and Eve is the Bible anticipates and looks forward to the coming Messiah. And he would come to overthrow and destroy the works of the devil and institute that new everlasting covenant. And that's exactly what Jesus communicates here in the Gospel of Mark, in that he is the fulfillment and the one who brings about the new covenant by his work on the cross. And that's, in some ways, what we kind of anticipate. Um, so that's the work, and that's the the substance of the new covenant, and just for the sake of reading this to you as well, back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, the prophet, writes this about the New Covenant. This is pretty easy to remember as a reference point, if you can remember 3131, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. That's where you find a communication of the New Covenant. He says, and I'll read this to you, this is about a paragraph long here. Follow with me. It says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the focus we want to have. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There's quite a bit in that paragraph. Honestly, we could spend the whole rest of this episode just unpacking all of that. There's so much glory found in that paragraph. But just for the sake of bringing this conversation uh, into a more focused look of the books of the New Testament, I want to say this, that the New Covenant promised is a forgiving of sins, a new heart given, and the gift and reward of God himself to those to whom the covenant is promised to. The most important thing, really, that we should hear in that promise is not concerning material things, not even concerning ourselves isolated, but the communion, the share, the bond, the pledge made, which is this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, if you follow the narrative of the Bible, you know that ever since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, that the communion or the fellowship or the joining together of man with God was severed, was distorted because God will not dwell with sin. God has no communication with sin in terms of agreeing with it, condoning it, being okay with it, dwelling with it. Sin has to be dealt with. For us, to be in the presence of a holy God, something has to happen or occur on our behalf so that we could not only stand to be in his presence, but be allowed to be in his presence. And that concept of being in his presence and belonging to him when he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, the only way that that can happen is if sin is dealt with. Well, that's what Jesus Christ has done. How does this new covenant come about? He says, this is the new covenant, my blood. Well, what does that mean? It means that the shedding of his blood brings about the forgiveness of sin so that we can not only, quote, make it to heaven, but we can dwell with God as his people and he as our God. That's the gift of the gospel. The substance of the gospel is God himself, and that's a wonderful thing. And so when we think about Jesus giving us that clue, really it's less than a clue. It's, it's really a proclamation from a megaphone, if you will. It's an important thing. It's not just a little clue to look over. It's an important pronouncement. And that is that how this new covenant comes about is by his work, his victory, his perfection. That's a wonderful thing to think about when we think about the New Testament. So we don't want to think when we hear the phrase New Testament, we don't want to just say in our minds, oh, you mean Matthew through Revelation. Not because that's a wrong answer, but because the whole grounds of the New Testament is found in work having been accomplished. In other words, there's a message in Matthew through Revelation. There's not just 
a book division, but there's a message, there's a gospel, there's good news being proclaimed in Matthew through Revelation, and that is the work of Jesus Christ, the way of salvation being afforded to us, and the promise that God has made to all those who are found in Jesus Christ by faith in him is that we will dwell with God forever, we as his people and he as our God. And so now, let's take that concept and think about the subtitle of this episode. That is both an aerial view and a ground zero view. So what do I mean by that? Well, when you look at the New Testament, and here's where the book division really comes into play. The New Testament, I mentioned this uh, previously when I talked about the Bible as being a library. You can find that back at episode six of this podcast. And since I have an opportunity, I'll use that new domain name one more time. You can find that at betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode six. So you can find that there, but I'll go over it very briefly here for you. You have Matthew through Revelation in the New Testament. And the way that I like to divide this up is as follows. You have Matthew through the book of Acts. And the way that that's typically uh, categorized in many Bibles or reading plans is kind of a, well, it's, it's a really simple categorization is this, the Gospels and Acts. Pretty self-explanatory there. Matthew through the book of Acts. Then you have Romans through Revelation. Now, I talked about how the Bible is divided more particularly in the authorship of them. So Romans all the way through Philemon are the Pauline letters, the letters of Paul, the writings of Paul. Then you have Hebrews and James, which are both titled Catholic epistles, not because, and and also the book of Jude as well in there, Catholic epistles, not because some connection to Roman Catholicism as a religion, but Catholic meaning universal. In other words, those books were not written to one particular church. It's at least unlikely that they were. There's more of a general or universal um, audience in mind um, by those writings. And you also have the Petrine letters, the, the letters of Peter. And you have the writings of John, not just the Gospel of John, but also 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation being um, the book of revealing what is to come to pass, or in other words, apocalypse, the apocalypse of John. So... If you, if you want more details of that, you can listen back to episode six. I spend a lot more time talking about all that, but I just wanted to run through that really quickly uh, because we want to kind of step back for a minute and think about what exactly is taking place in the content of these books. Well, one of the things that's taking place is first and foremost, the substance of of that new covenant happening. Remember I said that Jesus Christ himself is 
the substance of the new covenant, the one who brings about the new covenant, the one who fulfills all things on our behalf. And where we find the content of what exactly he's done, not just the focus on his death on the cross, but the way that he fulfills all righteousness. It's not just that Jesus died a perfect death, but it's that he lived a perfect life prior to that perfect death. And you find those accounts in the Gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of those Gospels are written with a different aspect. It's not that they contradict one another, but the uh, goal of the writers is to communicate to us a central focus on a certain aspect of Jesus in his work. So in the book of Matthew, for instance, Matthew goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is the promised king who is to come. So there's a lot of um, Jewish elements in the Gospel of Matthew that it records in large detail Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leaders, um, his interaction with the law of God, his fulfillment of those things, and his superiority and his claim to the throne as being in the lineage of David, the Old Testament king of Israel. Then you have in Mark, which is historically attributed to Peter. So it's not that Peter wrote it, but Mark is written as a kind of testimony of Peter's ministry um, during the time of the early church. So uh, historically, anyways, um, the Gospel of Mark was written more to a non-Jewish audience, and they kind of wanted their own written account. And if you want a little bit of detail on this, you can read uh, Eusebius, and I'll, I'll put a link to this, uh, Eusebius's church history. This is a very early historian. I think he was alive during the second, or might have been third century. Um, but this is one of those classical books of church history that really covers the very foundational times. And uh, one of the things that he says about uh, the Gospel of Mark is that Mark wrote this kind of under the authority of Peter the Apostle, um, so that those whom they were ministering to would have their own written account while the Gospel of Matthew was being circulated. Whether or not all the ins and outs of that account is true or not, it is true that you see in the Gospel of Mark um, a lot of focus on Peter, but it's not in this egotistical way. It actually focuses on his shortcomings and his downfall as an imperfect man, uh, which would probably make sense uh, that Peter would want to capitalize not on how much he has it together, but on the graciousness of God upon him as an imperfect man. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, you have Luke who is the physician and historian, the travel companion of Paul. So you kind of see Luke being the travel companion of Paul and Mark being a later travel companion of Peter. And Luke writes this gospel account kind of as an eyewitness testimony. So he's writing it to 
prove the first of all laying out a um, a timeline of of Jesus' life, his work, and showing as a reliable account the demonstration of Jesus' victory. And the way that that relates to the book of Acts is that Luke and Acts were actually written as a two-volume account. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, focusing on the work of Christ, and then he shows the impact of that or the result of that in the book of Acts. We'll get to that in just a moment. The Gospel of John, being the fourth gospel, is a very important theology. That's not to say that the other three Gospels are not theological or anything like that, but John really focuses on the divinity of Jesus in a really concentrated way, I would say more so than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John, if you, if you see kind of the relationship between the Gospel of John and his letter, First John, you can see that he's really interested in defending Jesus' divinity and his humanity. So there was an early heresy in church history where too much focus was put on one or the other, or that Jesus was kind of this composite creature. He's kind of half God, half man, or kind of a mixture of both. And the historic Orthodox position of the church is that Jesus is one person. He's not a mixture of persons. He's not a composite, but he's one person with two natures. And those two natures themselves are distinct, always in agreement with one another, never combative towards one another, but he has a human nature and a divine nature. And you see both of those expressed uh, in the Gospels. But John is really interested in focusing on that divine nature, but he also wants to make sure that that's never understood at the expense of Jesus' human nature. So John writes with, uh, really you see the thesis of John's Gospel at the end of it, where he says these things are written um, so that you might understand and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him you might have eternal life through faith in his name. So John makes that very clear in his gospel. So all that to say, the four gospels are all important. It isn't fair to say if you read one, you've read them all, because there's different elements uh, that are found in all of them. But all of those focus on the work of Jesus. That's why they're called Gospels. The good news of the new covenant coming to pass is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that's exactly what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John focus on. Well, then we get to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is a historical survey of the land. What I mean by that is that, especially if we want to look at Luke being the the gospel that most closely relates to the book of Acts, is that Luke lays the groundwork of what Jesus has done. And then you get to the book of Acts, and the question is, so what? So what? What is the, what is the outcome of that? What is the relation of that? How does that all work? And that's what he's answering in the book of Acts. 
So the book of Acts is sometimes thought of as the birth of the church. And I don't think that's a fair way to say that because God's people has always been God's church. God's called out ones, literally what church uh, communicates as, as a word. And God's people have lived as his church, as his called out ones, all the way back in the Old Testament to the New Testament. So the significance of the book of Acts is not that the church was formed or that it was born or that it didn't exist prior to that, but that there's this wide expansion of God's church, no longer centralized towards ethnic Jews or Israel, but the doors of salvation swung open to all people groups. That goes all the way back to the initial promise of the Old Testament that the promise that God gave to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed comes to pass in the book of Acts because after Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel message is brought not just to ethnic Jews but to all nations because all nations are given that promise of life by faith in Jesus Christ. In those first five books, what we have is an aerial view. I don't know how many of you are, are like me, but one of the things that I like doing from time to time is going on Google Maps. And I like going on Google Maps and turning on the satellite function because I like taking an, an aerial view of different places. It's fun to do sometimes just to see the way that places are laid out. Or if you think about, you know, if you want to kind of get your mind wrapped around how a, a certain city you might be getting ready to visit is laid out. Um, sure, you might just turn on your GPS if you're driving, but sometimes it's good to kind of like take a step back and see the whole layout of the city or looking at some kind of, you know, it's, so many people always like to look at like say area 51, for example, go to the aerial view of that and try, try to figure out what, what is what. And, uh, that, that's kind of a, a comical thing to do, but you know, sometimes it's good for us to kind of be able to see the big picture, see the whole thing. And that's really what you have going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but especially in the book of Acts, because when you get to the book of Acts, you have so many different places mentioned that you see again later on in the New Testament. So you have really a kind of a, a follow-up of Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry, and the two of them are just going from place to place, making connections, planning churches, um, establishing leaders, and then going on to the next place. And you, you have this this kind of de development happening all through the book of Acts. Well, as that happens, you start hearing mention of places such as Galatia, such as Ephesus, such as Philippi, and characters that we – I say characters in a literary sense, not as in made-up made people – you, you see certain people introduced to us, and then we find them again later on in the New Testament. Well, really what we're, what's happening is we're having this aerial view, this, this view from the sky picture of the, the layout, the landscape, the culture of the early church and the different 
important places in the Jewish world and in the Roman Empire as a whole. Well, one of the ways that I like to think about the rest of the New Testament is not in terms of aerial view, but in terms of a ground zero view. So, for example, you have a overview, an aerial view from the sky of what's happening in the book of Acts, and then you get to a book such as Romans or 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy, and suddenly you have this ground zero, in-depth view of that particular group or that particular church. And for me, it's really, really helpful to kind of understand that. Uh, one of the things that's helpful for us to do when we're reading a book such as Romans, for example, is to get a little bit of an understanding of the historical background. So if I come to the book of Romans, I read that Paul is writing the letter to the Romans, to the Roman Christians, and what would help me understand some of the things that he's addressing is by getting a little bit of historical background. Well, how can we do that? Well, the book of Acts, here we go with the the aerial view, the survey book, actually gives us some clues. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be the scholar to figure it out. You can simply look at your footnotes. Most Bibles have footnotes or have more correctly termed cross-reference verses. Almost every Bible has cross-reference verses, and if not, you can go and find a a free Bible online, an electronic version, and and that'll have cross-reference verses. One of the things that you can do, whether you're in Romans or any other of the New Testament letters, is to pay attention to those cross-references at the bottom of each page and anywhere that mentions the book of Acts is going to be really helpful for you to look at and cross-reference because the book of Acts is likely going to give you some kind of historical background to that particular book you're reading. Just a very brief example from the book of Romans is you, you hear in the book of Romans that Paul contrasts again and again this Jewish-Gentile dichotomy. So he's relating the two to one another. He's helping us understand how they come together. Is there some kind of difference, et cetera, et cetera? Well, one of the things that's helpful to realize is that when you look in the book of Acts, we find out that Jews were actually banished from Rome during the reign of Claudius. And upon the death of Claudius, you have that banishment being removed. So you have, in other words, a freedom for Jews, ethnic Jews, to return to Rome and dwell there. Well, what's happening in the meantime of that banishment? Well, Gentiles are becoming Christians. That is, non-Jews who are living in Rome are becoming Christians. So you find that information out in the book of Acts. You bring that together, and you realize one of the reasons that Paul is relating the two to one another is because you had Gentile Christians living there, and now you have this influx again of Jewish Christians living there. So you have Jews and you have non-Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles, living together, and the 
concept of salvation and the gospel and the new covenant, everything is is really up for grabs. They're trying to understand, okay, are we are we one people? Are we two peoples? What's the relationship here? Are we talking about level one, level two Christians, or are we on equal ground? How does that work? And Paul's addressing that, and the way we find that out, again, is that information that's made available to us in the book of Acts. And that's just simply internal evidence. That is to say, all of that information is simply found from looking within the Bible itself. The Bible is its best interpreter, and in terms of history, we can actually find a lot of detail right there in the text without even going to outside resources such as, uh, you know, first century history or um, an overview of the Roman Empire or anything like that. All those things are good. They're all helpful. But what I'm trying to show you is that the way the Bible relates to itself in an aerial view, in a ground zero view, can really tell us a lot without even having to go outside the Bible. And again, that's made available to us by a simple look at the cross-reference verses. So try that with 1 Corinthians, try that with Hebrews, and you're going to see a whole lot of Old Testament relation to those books, but pay special attention to references in those books to the book of Acts, because again, Acts is kind of a historical survey, and in other words, it provides a lot of historical background information to us related to those particular New Testament letters and even the people mentioned in those New Testament letters. So I hope that's helpful for you to see. And finally, you can rinse and repeat that process for all the New Testament books, but that leaves us with one last one, and that is the book of Revelation. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I plan to do a future episode relating to the book of Revelation, but one thing that I do want to mention is this, that the New Covenant, remember that promise was that I will be their people and they will be, I'm sorry, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the substance of the new covenant. That's what the relational terms are within the covenant. God will be our God. We will be his people. And according to Jesus, that is made possible and brought about by him with his work in his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God. Well, when we get to the book of Revelation, there's a lot happening clearly, but one of the things that's just a beautiful communication is when we get to the very last chapter of Revelation. We have in that a depiction of the river of life, which you remember in the old in the in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks to us and to his audience and says that from him flows streams of living water, the water of life. So you have this description of what he brings about, namely life itself. And then further along we read in chapter twenty two of Revelation that the tree of life is in the midst of this new 
heavens and new earth, this place that God's people will dwell. And that points all the way back to the book of Genesis, where the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. And the last thing that I want to mention in that is it says this. It says in verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, no more curse. That was what happened when sin entered into the world. There was a curse put upon us, all mankind, the curse of sin, the result of sin being death. And it says, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So there's that everlasting promise of what? Of being his people. That promise that God gave that I will be their God and they shall be my people. That promise is exactly what happens at the very end of Revelation. So many times the scariest book for any of us to read is Revelation. But one of the ways to help think about that is that the book of Revelation really is a good bookend to the whole concept of the New Covenant. Because remember, the New Covenant is anticipated as far back as the book of Genesis. It's promised throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus pronounces that he is the substance, the center, the source of the New Covenant. He's the one that brings it to pass. It's found in him. Relating to it and partaking of it is only possible in him. And then the so what is answered throughout the rest of the New Testament and finally concluded in the book of Revelation. And if I could say one thing about the book of Revelation, the revelation, the revealing that's happening is that, simply put, God has made good on all of his promises. Everything that he has promised, everything that he has told us from Genesis all the way, has been brought to pass, and how has it been brought to pass? Through the victory of Jesus Christ. So a lot of times we get lost in the details of Revelation, or we're too scared to even try to read it because it may be too complicated for us, we might get it wrong. But if we keep that in mind as the center, the goal, the end of it, then we don't get lost in some of the less clear details Now, we should certainly try to study it. There are certainly right and wrong ways to go about that. But we can really make a lot of ground just by reading with that concept at the center. So I hope that you'll do that, and I hope that you'll also keep in mind what I just mentioned about the aerial view and the ground zero view of the New Testament. To me, that's the best way that we can think about it. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but if we want to take a step back and really say what is the New Testament, I think that's a great way to approach it. I think it'll help you in your reading, so I hope that you benefit from this episode. One last thing to mention. I mentioned earlier about I think that New Testament and Old Testament would really be better entitled New Covenant, Old Covenant. And one of the books that's been influential to me in that 
is actually a book that was mentioned by Josh way back in episode six. And I'm sorry, episode four. And what he said was the book written by O. Palmer Robertson, and the book is entitled The Christ of the Covenants. And I think that the author, O. Palmer Robertson, makes a great um, case that we should understand the Old Testament and New Testament in terms of covenant and not in the concept of a last will and testament. And he makes a great argument for that. Um, If you're interested in that, I would certainly recommend that book to you. I'll put a link to it in the description page of this podcast episode. But anyways, that that really wraps it up for this episode. Uh, I hope that you found this all helpful. I hope you're excited with the things that are to come in future episodes. And I always mention this, but if you have any anything that you are interested in in seeing covered in this or even with uh, my blog articles as well, uh, please feel free to reach out to me and just tell me about it. I'll be glad to make more content that is helpful for you. And that's what my website and this podcast channel is, is to help you. So reach out to me, uh, social media. You can email me, Kevin at scriptandsong.org. Or hopefully at the time of this release, you can also catch me at Kevin at betterbiblereading.com. That wraps it up for today. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care.